You're listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Richard McKinnon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pilar Orti. Hi, Pilar, and how are you? I am be doing very well. I was going to say, I'm delighted to be here, which of course I am. Hello, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> that was some accidental enthusiasm there. <laughs> very welcome. Very welcome to hear. So it, it's good to be back um, to record another episode with you. This time, we're going to talk about the topic of managing our tasks at work and what that means, and look at one of the problems that we can face uh, well, probably a few problems, but one in particular, which is about tasks that keep popping up that we don't deal with. Uh, but first, let's have a look at some some news and updates. First of all, a reminder that we're on episode 49. <laughs> Next time you hear from us, it's going to be episode 50, which we're treating as a bit of a landmark. So do get in touch with your feedback on what you've heard so far, whether you've listened to all 49 of these, or maybe this is your first one. And uh, you'd like to let us know what you think, uh, what you've learned, how you've benefited, what you've put into practice, what we could do more of or less of, and what you'd like to hear over the next or let's say the next 50 episodes, (laughs) uh, do get in touch. So you can tweet us something briefly at mypocketpsych or send us a longer message if that's more helpful to you via the the form on worklifepsych.com slash contact. And you can send us an epically long piece of feedback there. We'd love to hear from you. And we can, of course, keep your feedback anonymous if you would prefer that. Or we can mention who you are, where you're at, uh, and all of that stuff. So I want to start our news news with a piece of um, an article I thought was really quite interesting. Um, It's over on a website called The Sweet Setup. And um, this is um, a website that that sells online productivity training to use specific apps. So what they do is they've picked what they think are the best apps to do certain things, and then they offer training to help you get the best out of that app. I can't speak to the training. I've never done any of the training, but it's something that um, they emphasize here. But they've also got a blog, and um, they they have this really nice article about creating a distraction-free smartphone. In this case, a distraction-free home screen on an iPhone. And um, I thought it was quite nice. And actually, I've I've experimented with some of this since I read the article, because one of the first things that, that they mention about on the home screen, on the very first screen, there's no social media apps. And um, what I did was I've moved all my social media apps away from the front screen so that there's a bit more effort to flick through, to find them, to do anything with them. Um, no notifications on the front screen, no badges for, say, unread uh, messages or unread emails. Uh, he talks about only having what he calls productive apps on the on the home screen, the first screen that you see, and that he's um, he's organized it so he's got some blank folders on the the screen, which pushes icons 
over to the next screen. If you don't have these blanks in there, uh, the way iOS works is that it will just fill the screen with these apps. Um, so he's got that in there to space things out and have, when he opens his phone, just the apps he associates with productivity or, or getting things done. And I, you know, there's no great science behind this, except putting a bit of distance between you and distractions. And I thought it was a really nice accessible list of, of recommendations. Mm. I tried to do that on my phone uh, some time ago. I've got, because also I really like to segment and, and, and bl uh, group things together. But for me, it doesn't work. I go to a home screen and this, all that stuff's not there. It doesn't matter. I just swipe to the next screens. I've got all my work and social at, right on my third screen. However, what I'm thinking is maybe, I don't know, I don't think this is what exactly he's talking about with the blank folders, but I think that maybe putting stuff in a folder might help for me. Mm. Just to, to hide it away yeah, a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to go looking for that folder and then within that folder find that app. And yeah, it's just that yeah. extra bit that if you're, because I do find myself just, um, I have noticed just reaching for the phone without really an, any intent. And I think it, then that would, would help. Um, yeah, I, I like this. I like the, I like the thought behind this. I think it's a, it's a nice idea to just consider how your phone is set up. Mm you know, in the first place? And is it set up in a way that's helping you get the stuff done that you want to get done with the phone? Or when you look at your screen, is it a sea of notifications and red badges that are all calling your attention? Uh, something uh, that has come up uh, unsurprisingly in coaching sessions for me in the last year uh, has been coaches feeling overwhelmed with work, but overwhelmed by you know digital information coming at them. And we do take the time to unlock the phone go to the settings and show them how to not get these notifications on an app by app basis. So you can say, I do want to see how many unread text messages I have because they're normally more urgent, but I don't want to see how many unread emails I have. If that's the first thing I see, that, that makes me anxious. So there's a lot you can do with this. This kind of functionality, I think developers keep a little bit vague. It, it's not exactly transparent. It's not that they're hiding it, but it, it's not always touted as an amazing feature of phones. And I think, you know, given what we've been talking about for, for, for a long time with distractions and notifications, I think it's something that they could emphasize and um, pull to the front of settings and really make it, um, really advertise the fact that this is to help you be less distracted by this incredible device. Let's move on to, to well-being news. Uh, I came across uh, an article in New Scientists, uh, New Scientist, which appealed to me uh, because <laughs> it was about the health benefits of napping. And napping comes up in um, discussions of well-being and productivity in the workplace regularly. But often it's about uh, the subjective experience. You know, I like to nap, I don't like to nap, or um, this is how I think it benefits me. Uh, New Scientist has pulled together some scientific evidence for the benefits of napping, particularly around um, refreshing us cognitively, helping us deal with uh, memories and uh, emotions. So if you're particularly interested in this, um, the link is in the show notes. It is behind a paywall on new scientists so you will have to to register to get in there but um, if you are interested in the science behind napping uh, then that's one one to have a look at a nice um, refreshing view of it rather than um, the do's and don'ts 
And Pilar, you um, were recently uh, interviewed on the Working Mums websites um, about the topic of uh, remote working. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, <laughs> I was going to suggest a, a, a what was that that thing that uh, Daniel Pink um, came up with the Nappuccino. <laughs> oh, the <laughs> Completely no Nappuccino, yes. Stuff for that, but um, I, as a as a heavy napper myself, I used to. It, I found. The, the little bit I was able to read from the article of the New Scientist that they um, the longer naps, the one hour long, how much uh, how that could help us cognitively. And I used to have lots of those naps out of which I came out really, really groggy. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting that I've trained myself um, to see what works for me and what helps me get on with the day. And I found that the the 20 minute ones, which they also talk about um, really, really help. And having a, a coffee before them means you can sleep, but then you wake up and you wake up refreshed. So uh, that's not the scientific thing. Listeners go and read the article. <laughs> that was my, well, you know, the, nap <laughs> the, the Nappuccino is, is an interesting one because it is about using caffeine. Yes. Um, to be your alarm clock rather than an external one. And many of us would prefer to be woken up by some chemical reactions internally than a really nasty noise externally. Um, I think, you know, 20 minutes is a, is a great time to engage in an app so that you don't go into this too deep a sleep state and avoid that sleep inertia when you wake up. Um, I think a lot of us can identify with that feeling like a zombie coming out of a nap and then wondering, was it worth it? Because I feel rotten now. Uh, and I, you know, it's difficult to do stuff. So 20 minutes seems, seems like a good time. You might want to experiment with your nappuccino. <laughs> I think I, I mentioned previously encountering an example of someone who would nap with their phone in their hand. And as soon as they went into a deep sleep, they would lose their grip on the phone yes. and the noise of the phone hitting the ground was what woke them yeah. up. Uh, I wouldn't do that personally. Um, I, I can't be um, bothered with queuing up to get my phone fixed. But napping can be really good for us. And I suppose the more of us that could understand and talk knowledgeably about the benefits of that, uh, the fewer of us who will try and power through without getting a few minutes if that's going to going to benefit us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So back to your question about the interview with uh, working moms. So I was part of a panel on uh, remote work and mental health. And we didn't go into a lot of depth. I think the conversation is really interesting that it, it's, uh, it was mainly around feelings of isolation that can then have an effect on the mental health. Um, so I think it's really interesting that this came up. It was a part of an event by Minds at Work, who look at mental health in the workplace really broadly. And just hearing the things that were coming up, as the, the issues that are coming up now, like isolation, was interesting for me. I would, have, um, I would really welcome more thought into the more difficult areas of mental health and the uh, stronger problems and how we deal with that when we're away from our team members. But I think as a start to get that conversation going, I really enjoyed this. Um, is there anything that you uh, wanted to uh, highlight specifically from that interview? Well, I think it's 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 really good to explore this perspective on um, you know wor working remotely because you know people talk about isolation and loneliness, um, but maybe not in an official way, and not ensuring that those things are prevented with with processes and guidance and, and training. But it's very easy for people to feel a little bit isolated. We've touched on this before, haven't we? About the social aspects uh, of the workplace that. You know, it's easy to miss out on people if we can't 
see them uh, or if we're not seeing them regularly. Um, and I think this is a really accessible discussion mm. um, on the website here about topics, uh, involvement and meeting up and um, the, the challenges that are faced by people who work in, in these setups. Yeah, and one thing that, that came up also um, during the panel, I don't know if we touched on it, I don't think we touched it in the interview, is uh, whether this is a responsibility for the individual or whether organizations need to be doing this. So if mm. we're looking at remote work, not as the freelancing, uh, but the people in organizations, who is responsible for helping uh, to create an, uh, something, who to create other processes uh, or whatever it is that help people to continue to stay connected or is it something that we as individuals need to be getting on with probably that of course like always the answer is somewhere in the middle but I think that that conversation is really interesting something that I don't think when we started looking at people working away from the office we really thought okay <laughs> what about the social connection and what do organizations need to be doing about that I, I agree. And I think the responsibility, the focus lies with both parties, really. Um, organizations could do a good job of training people in how to work effectively um, when working remotely and ensure that they're aware of organizational expectations around contact. And that needs to be that needs to involve the manager or the supervisor as well. Um, but I think for individuals, they need to know what works for them and reflect on how well it's going for them and to keep an eye on things like their well-being when they're working remotely and their working hours and to feel that they can speak up if an aspect of that working arrangement isn't working for them. Yeah, also at a, at a connection level, organizations, what can be done at an organizational level, which is more difficult than the individual, is finding ways to connect individuals and finding mm. ways for those individuals to find uh, their own support network within the organization. Because that takes a lot of coordination and a lot of thought. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, it's both of them. But I think that that bit of continuing to provide informal networks for employees, even though they're not in the office, is really missing from some organizations. There's some organizations doing that, but I think that that was my main thing. Yeah, I, I've encountered um, discourse around that in organizations where, you know, flexible working arrangements uh, are viewed negatively because there's the belief that the spontaneous conversations in the workplace are what makes it a special place to work. And if people aren't there, they'll miss out on that. And that is not acceptable. So the belief that you have to be here to communicate and that's where the magic happens. And I don't think that's always necessarily the case at all. Well, um, I could go about this forever. So I'll just plant this seed in listeners' ears. This concept of plant spontaneity, that is something that I, I am looking at a lot. And it's that those spontaneous conversations can happen, but ironically, you have to plan for them. And that is where organizational um, processes uh, come into play. So we talk a little bit about that in the article, actually. So if you're interested in that, you can you can pop into the article. Great. Thank you. I, I, I sense we should uh, record something specifically about this and, and dedicate an episode to it, because, as you know, it's a it's a yes. big, big topic. Maybe we could uh, peel it apart and get into more Excellent. detail. At Work Life Psych, we believe that coaching is for everyone 
And so we have created a cost-efficient, flexible and impactful solution we call Coach on Campus. This means coaching can be made available to more junior employees, emerging talent and technical specialists within the organization without incurring the cost or commitment of executive coaching packages. A work life psych coach is based on the client site on a regular day each month with a schedule that is dedicated to that organization. We'll facilitate six one-hour-long coaching sessions throughout the day. To find out more, visit worklifepsych.com slash coachoncampus. So let's move on to the, the main topic today, which is around task management. Um, well done for listening to this episode, first of all, because task management sounds terribly dry, doesn't <laughs> yes. it? It really does. Um, I haven't decided on the uh, the episode title yet, so maybe we've given it an amazingly interesting title on publication. But task management, ooh, what a dry topic. And yet it's so incredibly important, regardless of the job that we do, because every job is made up of tasks. Um, and so there's, there's lots of different perspectives that we could take on this, but I want to share an example of something that I actually saw on TV the other night. There's a documentary series on at the moment on British TV about British Airways. It's their 100th birthday this year, uh, 2019 depending on when you're listening. <laughs> and uh, each episode, they follow some members of the British Airways team to see what it is they do as part of this really enormous organization. So there's a lot of, obviously, diversity of roles in there. But um, I was sort of keeping one eye on it while sort of doing something else last night. Um, but I, I really got interested suddenly when I realized this head of the dispatcher team on the ground, and they're responsible for everything from fueling, cleaning, restocking the planes, ensuring that, you know, passengers are at the right gate, ensuring that the plane is at the right gate. I was struck within a few minutes about the complexity of this role and just how many tasks need to be completed in order to safely and efficiently turn a plane around and get it back up in the sky. And um, I was really glad we had decided to discuss this this topic of task management. And because if you're listening and thinking about your own role, fantastic. But think about all of the little pieces that make up your job, not just the big things that you would describe as being what makes your job yours, but actually all of the things that you do on various days that involve work. There's too many of them to count if, if we're honest with ourselves. And so the, the, the difficulty when it comes to m managing our tasks is to be clear on what it is we want to do with intent. What is it that's important to do? So that speaks to prioritizing, but also what's efficient, um, what is difficult in our list of tasks to be done, um, what is new and novel, or, or what is something that we do really, really regularly. And so the benefits of looking at our, our jobs from a task perspective is that it, it breaks it up into much more manageable chunks, which is a topic that comes up in, in productivity discussions all the time because people get stuck looking at the sort of project level rather than the task level. And as we've seen, that can lead to all kinds of things like feeling overwhelmed or procrastinating, um, when in fact, looking at the task level is normally um, much more palatable and much easier to understand. 
So I hope I'm making the case for considering tasks rather than projects or even starting this conversation to begin with. Yeah, I love this concept of looking at everything that we're doing that makes up our job. And even sometimes we're doing things with, which we, we do out of habit because we've done them for so long and they're such an ingrained part of our work that we don't even think about them. So I like the idea mm. also of just going back and revisiting all that. What exactly? And, you know, some practical benefits of this would be if I'm coaching an individual who's going through a workplace transition in terms of seniority, this comes up regularly because they'll feel, you know, there's, there's too much to be done in this new senior position. I'm, I'm finding it really hard to hack it. I, I, I just don't have the time to get all these things done. And if I challenge them to identify what they've actually done during the day at a task level, we can then say, and did that need it to be done? Did, you know, did, did you need to put time into that? Did anyone need to do this task today or at all? And is it, as you say, Pilar, out of habit or out of a misplaced understanding that the, the company values it? Or, or is it a good fit for your level of seniority now? Is that something that you in your job even need to be aware of? So breaking it down can be really useful on, on a number of levels. And as we've said before, if you get stuck uh, in, in, in uh, what you're working on, breaking it down into smaller tasks can give you clarity, can help take some of the pressure off, can clarify the next step to be taken. Uh, there's a number of benefits to it. Now, when I talk about the difference between tasks and projects, I, I really like the approach that uh, the writer David Allen takes when he talks about this. I'm not talking about formal project management, but more a loose understanding that a task is anything that can be completed in one go, uh, one sitting, and a project is you know, anything that can be broken up into smaller tasks. Um, using common sense here. But the example I always use to illustrate this is that organizing your summer holidays is definitely a project because it's made up of so many tasks. And yet if your to-do list included sort out summer holidays, that could just stay there for a long time because where do you start? What do you do? Hmm. So um, it's really important to be specific about tasks uh, so, uh, uh, you know, if you look at your to-do list, and I really hope you have one in some form, um, is it clear what needs to be done in the way that you articulate it? I see that's an area where many of us fall down. It's either too vague, it's missing key information, it's not something that's going to make sense to you in a few days' time. So I, I would suggest that you note these tasks in a way that someone else could understand if they were looking at it. Um, so they would know what is required. And of course, with tasks, as I said, we need to think about their relative priority in the scheme of things, how they um, help us reach our daily and more elaborate goals, um, and, and how we can help ourselves in being specific about them so we can actually get them done. And I suppose what I would, would flag up is the difference between looking at a list of things that need to be done versus going through the motions in autopilot and doing things out of habit, as you've alluded to. They're quite different experiences because the former, we can look at tasks and even at that point when they're written down or they're in an app and say, you know, I'm deciding not to do that because these things have a higher priority now, or this is what 
a good day at work will look like for me today. And if I get these things done, I will leave feeling satisfaction, feeling that I've been productive. And that's quite different to going through the motions where you can frequently get to the end of the day feeling suitably tired, but unclear as to what you actually achieve during the day. I really like the point you made about making a decision that something is not going to be done. Because I find sometimes um, there's all these things that are there wanting to be done. And the, the relief and, and sense of control that you get when you go, okay, well, I can't do that now because certain other things have to take priority. I'll put it to one side. I'll put, I'll put it in my calendar to do at another time. So, but, and we often forget to say, no, that cannot be done at the moment. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, making that conscious decision, um, it, you know, is more helpful than believing that we should keep going until everything on that list is done. When in every likelihood, we weren't estimating the effort required for these tasks. We just had a vague sense that they need to be done today. And so we've set ourselves up for failure mm -hmm. in a way because we've made it a list of things that couldn't be done to begin with. So it's useful to identify your key priorities for the day, and that can bring your focus back to them. Considering how many distractions are in most people's environments, that's really useful. Um, there's, a, there's a little framework that I share when I'm training people on topics like this, um, which is an amalgamation and a simplification of lots of different approaches that I've, I've read. Um, but we use the mnemonic GRADE, G-R-A-D-E, to remind people um, to keep a focus on this. And when it comes to tasks, I'll just run, run through this uh, briefly, but when it comes to, to managing those tasks, G is gather. Gather them all into one place. So then at least you know what you're dealing with. And that means put them all in one notebook or put them all in one spreadsheet or you can see where I'm going. But if tasks that need to be done exist in lots of different places, you may well spend time just trying to track them down rather than being able to refer to one central place. And when you've gathered them, you're able to then uh, refine that into something doable. And what I mean by that is you might have scribbled down an action in a meeting, in your notebook. But when you look at it later on, you realize actually that action is made up of multiple things that I need to do. So I can refine this scribbled reminder into four, five, six tasks that could be completed by me or others. And then A stands for assign. You're going to assign it uh, meaning. So maybe you're assigning it to a project or you're turning it into a project. You're assigning it a level of priority relative to the other work that you've got on. You might assign it a due date. Uh, you might assign it to someone else if you're lucky enough to be in the position where you can delegate to others. But you're adding more meaning to it with this assign uh, stage. Then you need to do it, obviously. So D for do. And, and again, we've talked about productivity porn before. You don't want to get caught up with your method to the extent that it prevents you from, from doing what's important and, and what's urgent. Um, but the do is to refer back to your tasks, refer back to your priorities, look at the detail you've put around them to make decisions. So to do it with intent. So we're back to that point of this was my plan. <laughs> the plan's been binned because the day looks quite different. But here are the things that I'm really going to put my time and my energy into today. 
And then the final uh, element of this is E for evaluate. And that's just to keep an eye on the way that you're doing this to see if you can make it work any better. Maybe it's evaluating how much time you're spending on this. Maybe it's noticing that your prioritization method doesn't really give you enough detail. Uh, maybe it's noticing trends in your own job that actually uh, you're not uh, delegating as much as you might. But it's just to, to keep an eye on how well this is working for you, because this is just a very simple framework. It's not an actual method. But if you follow that, you're kind of covering off the key aspects of what makes for good task management, and you can make it work for you in your job, whether it's a notebook you always have in your hand, or a very, very, very advanced task management app, the principles remain the same. Specificity, using it, coming back to it, and um, uh, being able to distinguish between those tasks and those projects. So one of the things I really wanted to focus on uh, today is this notion of the tasks that keep repeat, uh, reappearing on your list. Pilar, have you ever had that experience each day for a few days in a row, the, the rogue task that just won't go away? And weeks, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like the transparency. Mm. Excellent. It's, it, well, how does it feel when you keep seeing this uh, incomplete task? Well, it's sometimes it's not even incomplete. It just hasn't been started. And it, it sometimes it's a, some sense of guilt, especially if it involves someone else. And yeah, it, it, it's not a nice, it, it's, very, it, it's not a nice, um, yeah, it's not a nice feeling because it's just something that keeps coming back. And also it starts to get me to question, you know, what kind of professional am I <laughs> with this? Mm. I haven't done this. And so it's really interesting, like all the, the thoughts and uh, all the stuff around identity that can actually be mixed into how you manage your tasks. It's, it's really, really true. It's beyond just making a simple list, isn't it? Because if that list contains things you're never going to do, well, you're sort of making a promise to yourself that you're not keeping. And that feels awful. And then you get the guilt and you wonder about your own capability. And similarly, if it's something that keeps appearing, it could be because you're procrastinating <laughs> and you could do it. But, you know, you, you're telling yourself a story that tomorrow is a better day. So when looking at this topic, actually, with some some coaching clients recently, um, I, I wrote a brief blog post about it. So I'll link to that. But I thought I would call out some of the main things to consider if you notice that you have this same task or tasks appearing again and again, especially if you're someone that uses pen and paper, you may find yourself writing it out on a regular basis to start a fresh list, which is what a lot of people do on a daily basis. So I, the first question I would ask is, if this keeps appearing, does it even need to be done? Maybe time has passed to the extent that this isn't relevant anymore and you can just remove it from the list. Or maybe it's a, a case of it, it was a nice to have at a certain point in time, but it doesn't make sense to pursue it because it's not going to be as useful to you now as it was then. Uh, the example I give in, in the blog post is maybe the intention to write up some notes from an event you've been to, but it's so long since the event that it doesn't really make sense to do that because there's other things that could be a, a better use of your time and your attention. If it's weeks or months after, what's the point of guilting yourself if it's something that's really not that useful anymore? 
The, the next question is, is what I've alluded to already. Is this a task or is it actually a project? And if it's a project, it really doesn't belong on a list of tasks because it's too big, too meaty, too complex. So you don't know where to start. So is it something that has a few moving pieces? And if so, break them out and put the next one that you could actionably do today on the list instead of the project. This, in my experience, is really, really common. Um, many of us don't have that perspective that um, the benefits of breaking things into to smaller actions. And so it's really useful to ask yourself, could I do this in one go? Is it a, an email I need to write? Is it a, a person I need to go to speak to? Is it um, a document I need to read? Or is it a series of those things to get to a final outcome? Then it's a project. The next one is something we talk about a lot in various shades, but is this uncomfortable? When you think about doing it, do you get a vague sense of unease or a wish that you didn't have to do it? And this notion of uh, discomfort, it's a massive bucket of stuff. It could be anything. It could be uh, fear. It could be anxiety. It could be anticipated boredom. Now, there's no one answer to this because lots of things can make us a little bit uncomfortable. But one thing that I, I recommend is, is to think about the benefits of getting this task completed. Why am I doing it in the first place? What are the wins for me in completing this? And, and do these benefits outweigh the potential discomfort I'll feel while I'm doing it? In fact, may the relief from completing it outweigh the discomfort I anticipate uh, feeling while doing this task. There's um, there's something I heard, I've heard a couple of people say that helps me to to tackle the discomfort, not get over it or get the task done. Um, and please take this with a pinch of salt, listeners, because we know that here, uh, yeah, we, we, we do this. But something that I ask myself when, that I remind myself is uh, some people say, if it's making you uncomfortable, and this usually has to do with creative tasks and usually getting them started. So I might mm. be going to project level here, but it's also with tasks. If it's making you uncomfortable, it's probably the right thing you should be doing. Now, this is, of course, take all of this with a pinch of salt, but just remind, reminding myself of that, I then analyze why. What is the discomfort about? And is it because uh, I'm not prepared for it? Is it because I'm? Uh, it, it's going to be difficult? Is it because it's going to take a lot of energy? And sometimes it's actually not at all the the thing I should be getting on with. <laughs> so, but but just revisiting that and asking myself those questions just helps me to to understand what's going on. Absolutely, I would agree that discomfort is um, a sign. And the response to that is to ask yourself some questions uh, about it so that you can find out, well, where does this discomfort come from? And maybe um, there's something I can do about that. In general, the goal is not to reduce the discomfort, but to just keep going regardless of the discomfort, because it's not a great uh, way of deciding what to do and what not to do, because discomfort is, is loud and frequent, so it's not a great cue for action. But it can be a sign that what we're doing is meaningful, important, uh, scary, you know, any of those things. So labeling it can be really helpful, labeling the discomfort. And of course, repeated exposure to that can help us deal with it even better when we realize what tactic works for us. 
And there's many, many, many tactics that you can use there from, you know, saying it out loud, talking it through with a colleague, uh, making yourself a, you know, a promise around it. But, you know, being really clear on what it is that is tempting you to go in the opposite direction can be really helpful. Priorities. We've mentioned several times, it's a, it's a real skill to prioritize your work, but it may be that something keeps appearing on your list because, yeah, it could be done, but is it even relevant now? You know, maybe this is something that needs to be scheduled for the medium to, to long-term future. And if so, why would you have it on a list that you're going to look at now? So there's scheduling and prioritization in there, moving things, it's not procrastination if you're being honest about it and it is about the future. Um, and it, it will just add to your perceived workload if you keep putting it down on the list every day, every week. Also, clarity. This comes back to the specificity of, of how you write down a task, for example, but also maybe your own knowledge and your skills. So if there's a task there and you really don't know what to do next with it, um, there can be a temptation just to leave it and to do something that you feel more confident about or is easier to you. But this is the time to notice that. And then do something about that. Notice the fact that you you anticipate it's going to be difficult or you, you, you don't really know what to do next. Get some input from someone who could maybe help, you know, a colleague, or maybe look at, at how you could reframe starting it. Um, but definitely don't leave it because it's, it's not likely that it's going to get any clearer with the passing of time. In fact, it may get more difficult because it's further away from your initial writing down of that task and your memories may indeed fade. And then finally, uh, in, in the post, um, do you need a deadline? It might be that this is not something that people are jumping up and down for, but it is important. And because it doesn't have a sense of urgency about it, because they're two different things, um, you may have good intentions, but it could end up on your daily list forever. <laughs> yeah. Until you yourself decide, actually, this is the deadline by which I'm going to get this done. I'll make some time for it. And then it's a suitable task to put on that day's list or to schedule it in my calendar or however you want to approach it. But things can move from day to day to day because there's no external force on us to get it done. And we're much more likely to pay attention to the urgent things in our environment than those things that don't necessarily have an alarm attached to them. So a few thoughts in the post. Uh, there's, there's more you know, in there if you want to go and have a look at it. But I'd encourage everyone to have a good think about their work at the task level, particularly is there stuff that doesn't need to be done anymore? Are there things that you can delegate effectively to others? And what are the critical tasks each day that you would associate with a good day at work, a productive day at work, uh, a day at work that l allows you to leave feeling accomplished and having used your time, your attention and your energy to best effect. Pilar, you had a book recommendation on this very topic. Well, it's not on the topic, <laughs> but it does bring the, the the topic up. And I thought it was very interesting, the, the context of it. Um, so the book is called The Science of Storytelling, Why Stories Make Us Human, and it's by Will Storr. And I've been reading this. It's it's a real 
it is looking at human nature and what drives us, etc. Et and just this morning, I was reading around um, the importance of, and this goes beyond tasks, but it goes to the importance of goals and and projects and how important this is for humans at a, at a very um, instinctive level. So I just thought that listeners of the show might enjoy that because it's looking, it's not, it's not a how-to book, of course, and it's not really a, a book teaching you how to write, but it's to understand human nature. And it's a lot of what we talk about. And I just thought it was interesting. There's a bit where he says, um, the psychologist, Professor Brian Little has spent decades studying the goals that humans pursue in their everyday lives. And I know we were talking about tasks. This is different. And um, he finds we have an average of 15 personal projects going at once, a mixture of trivial pursuits and magnificent obsessions. Uh, we are our personal projects. His studies have found that in order to bring us happiness, a project should be personally meaningful and we ought to have some level of control over it. And I thought that is what made me think, right, because task management is about gaining control for me also over mm -hmm. our time, mm -hmm. over what we have to do and how that can help us at quite a gut level. Absolutely. You know, the, the only way we reach our goals is by completing some tasks. Um, you know, we, we have to take steps to get towards those goals and it's, it's great to have goals, but if we don't do anything in order to reach them, we're, we're not going to be successful in that regard. So these are like the moving parts here at different levels. I think it's super relevant to talk about goals. Uh, we just haven't got time to go into the science <laughs> of goal setting today, but it's incredibly powerful. Um, but you know, if you have a goal, you then need to take action to get there. And I, I see it as an area where people fall down regularly. They set amazingly um, powerful and evocative goals, and they are as, as sensible and as detailed and as motivating as you can imagine. But what they haven't got down to is the level of small steps they're going to need to take to get there and they don't revisit them. So this goal is waiting for them to take action, but they haven't identified the small things they're going to do to start that journey. So getting down to the level of tasks and back up to see how they relate to your goals is a really useful connection to make. So thank you uh, for that. Um, really interesting. I, I shall take a look. It will, well, it will go on my list. <laughs> <laughs> that list? <laughs> that reading list. I'm Make making good progress through the. I tell you, I'm making good progress through my reading list this year because I'm I'm also using audiobooks, and um, it's a great way to uh, experience um, books that I've wanted to read for quite some time while I'm walking to work or out for a run. So it's. Uh, but the, you know, the list is still unmanageable. I'm completely honest about that. It's just slightly less unmanageable in in 2019. Maybe we can ask listeners for the contribution to our 50th episode if they have any books that have um, been useful at any kind of level. So from stuff like what I was recommended, which is actually about understanding human nature, right to the to-do, that could be quite a nice call to action. That's a, that's a great idea. So send us in the links to those books and why they're meaningful to you. Um, you know, what is the link with the psychology of the workplace? And it could be very tenuous if it's meaningful to you. That, that's absolutely fine. Uh, we'd love to know that. And we can, of course, share them with listeners. 
So next time we speak, <laughs> it's going to be the big five zero. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're going to have a review of you know what it's been like. We're going to have a look at some of the outstanding episodes that you, the listeners, have um, really enjoyed, and um, hopefully share some of the feedback, ideas, and suggestions that you have. So remember, you can tweet us at mypocketpsych or send us a message via the contact form worklifepsych.com slash contact. So Pilar, episode 49, we're done. Oh, thank you, listeners. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com slash contact. Thanks for listening.